everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Rural Perspectives Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Albrick, and odds are good that you've heard the term sustainable agriculture kicked around a time or two. Today, we're going to be exploring what that all entails, and here to help us with that is Jared Lumen, who serves as the Soil Health Lead for the Sustainable Farming Association of Minnesota. Welcome, Jared. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so I like to kind of kick things off by learning a little bit about the subject matter, which is yourself and the organization you work for. So could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and the uh, the Sustainable Farming Association of Minnesota? Yeah, yeah, sure. So the Sustainable Farming Association, or SFA, is, is just an organization that's really focusing on creating networks for farmers as well as resources for farmers to help them improve their operations in multiple facets. Um, sustainable is more than just soil it's sustainable in finance uh, to be sustainable you have to be financially sustainable so improving that bottom line you have to have a good work-life balance and improving you know your your lifestyle on the farm and then also you know focusing on that soil and so we like to help farmers in those three regards just to improve their their operations on that triple or you know that that three uh sided kind of coin you know you can't have one without the others so the organization does that through lots of different ways. We have uh, on-farm field days and workshops. We've been doing fewer of those as of late and more online uh, resources, um, as well as a Connect newsletter. And we just started a podcast of our own to just provide as many resources as we can for all of our members. You do hear the word sustainable kicked around and, and mentioned in quite a few circles. Uh, people have called it kind of a buzzword, but. What exactly does that term mean to you guys? Yeah, yeah. So I kind of talked about it a little there too, and that sustainable really means uh, the ability of a of a farm or whatever you're referring to as being sustainable, and in its ability to last indefinitely, and to be sustainable in farming specifically, there are those three sides that I kind of talked about there, where you have to improve your, you have to have a sustainable lifestyle. If your farming operation requires you to work 85 hours a week, 90 hours a week, you know, every week, no, no breaks, no vacation, that's really not a sustainable business. Um, at the same point, if you're not making money, uh, you're not going to be sustainable in the long term. Or if you're constantly degrading your resource, uh, there's only so many years that our soils can take that abuse to end. So to be sustainable, an operation has to be able to meet the requirements of all three of those sides. And, and in fact, uh, we are focusing not only on just sustaining our resource, but actually regenerating it. And that's another term that's kind of been thrown around a lot lately is the regenerative movement and that's essentially like like you say I mean it, or like I said is sustainable is kind of just maintaining the status quo whereas we are focusing on trying to build and improve and and bring our soils back to actually where they were prior to um, you know settlement and prior to tillage and, and man-made uh, you know and, and man's impact on land um, and so we're working on that as, as well. Now, the upper Midwest, of course, is, is pretty blessed with, uh, well, healthy soil types. The yes. pr prior to settlement, there was, of course, Minnesota and, and parts of North Dakota were in the, the high grass prairies, which were shaped by the animals and, and everything before them. You know, what is it about the soil type around here that, that really benefits farmers and, and really provides so much nutrients to a growing population? You know, we really are, we are really 
fortunate to be in the area we have here with adequate moisture, which really improve or encourages plant growth. Um, you know, a, a, a great deep topsoil, which in some ways is dangerous because we don't recognize the impacts we're making on our lands with uh, poor management because we don't see the impacts right away. We have so much, almost a buffer, you could say, in our depth of our soils. Yeah, you talked about the prairie uh, prairie grass that it was in at one point and with the you know the ruminant animals that grazed across those animals in large herds trampling and, and building soil we had organic matters i've heard anywhere from you know seven to twelve percent whereas now we're you know one to three percent and so you know we've had historically you know historically the soils have been built over you know many many years um, under a certain system to be really conducive to production agriculture, but we have to be careful that we don't abuse that that historical gift, I guess you could say we have. And that's why we're focusing on, on building and regenerating our soils today. Let's talk about some of those practices that, uh, that have shown to be positive. And uh, one thing that I do want to talk about is cover cropping. Now, cover cropping has yeah. kind of slowly come along, but it seems to be growing in practice. And once more people kind of try it out and, and to see for themselves what it's doing to their land. But uh, just talk a little bit about cover cropping. What are the benefits and, and why should farmers look into putting into these practices? Yeah, sure. So it's interesting. You talk about cover crops slowly becoming more and more mainstream. It's true because it wasn't too long ago when you, you know, would be hard pressed to find a farmer who knew what they were. And now you can't open an ag magazine or article or, or newspaper without finding something about cover cover crops, it seems like. Industry is catching on and that's because there are so many benefits to it. And the benefits, you know, can really be shaped by what your kind of operation are. Um, for the average crop farmer, um, you know, it might just be, you know, advantage of, of uh, reducing erosion and building your soil aggregates and, and a better soil structure that improves the crop, uh, crop growth. One of the coolest things I think about cover crops when I see them is that, and and ag country or ag country is in ag finance. I'm sure you you guys recognize that not much in agriculture uh, comes cheap. And one of the only cheap, if not free, things that we as farmers have is the ability to capture sunlight. Sunlight energy is this unlimited free resource that feeds our soil through photosynthesis it takes you know photosynthesis takes carbon dioxide and sunlight energy and water out of the air and puts pumps carbon into our soils which is what feeds biology and feeds the life in the soil that um, improves the the crops we're growing and the nutrient density of the, the, that we're growing as well as the soil itself um, and cover crops allow us to capture photosynthesis and sunlight energy for an additional two to four months a year. You know, the main cash crops grown in this area are corn and soybeans, and they, you know, they're really only growing and photosynthesizing for, you know, May, June, July, and August, you know, three to five months out of the year uh, before they're dormant or, you know, after they're, they're planted. But that really limits our ability to capture sunlight because we have growing season before and after that, that cool season grasses and cover crops like rye, oats, um, and you know many other different plants have the ability to capture. And so for farmers to be able to capture that free energy and put that into the soil through the use of cover crops is extremely advantageous. Additionally, cover crops can produce an additional revenue source, especially for those farmers with livestock. Um, 
it, it, it allows them to extend the grazing season. On our farm in particular, we uh, have been able to graze last the last few years well into January, into the new year, and last year actually into February. Um, and every day that we're grazing a, a, a stockpiled cover crop or plant residue is one day we're not feeding fed hay and we're allowing the animal to harvest that crop. We're allowing the animal to spread its nutrients and that reduces our cost anywhere from one to $2.50 a day. Um, and when you're talking large amounts of animals, you're saving hundreds if not thousands of dollars a day. And so the value of cover crops for the livestock producer, just in grazing, not even, you know, not even mentioning the value of cover crops as a harvested hay um, for feed, uh, you know, cover crops can really be a extremely valuable asset to any farm type and and of course our territory runs from wisconsin here in minnesota into north dakota and literally up to the canadian border those are Mm -hmm. also different soil types those are slightly different climates as well are there certain cover crops that grow better in different areas yeah yeah, a lot of it is going to depend, you know, it's all about context. It's something that is is not talked about a lot is that every operation is going to be different um, and how you implement cover crops into every operation is going to be different. Recognizing what the crop is that you're trying to, you know, what the cash crop is uh, that you're trying to harvest. If it's a corn and soybean plant, you may not have as much time as you will have uh, after the harvest of that plant that you would in, say, a small, uh, small grain crop. And so some farms that are in an area that is more conducive to small grains where they have markets for small grains may have more of an opportunity to plant more diverse cover crops where those cover crop plants uh you know have time to grow and 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 get going in the fall whereas in strict corn and soybean grain country they may not have that ability Um, another consideration might be a farmer who's harvesting corn silage off early and they have that you know they're getting that off a month or, or or more earlier than than a grain crop and that allows them to get different plant species uh, that otherwise wouldn't be able to grow and to say there's a blanket treatment or one crop that will grow everywhere would be you know it wouldn't be right for me to say and so you'll have to research in your area what crops grow well and and take into consideration your context uh, as to what will grow well within your system but uh, the idea of cover crops and the value of cover crops can be implemented in any any area in in any farm in any situation it's just figuring out what works best in your particular situation one thing that just kind of stuck with me is i i was at a conference some time back and and i heard one of the speakers who was talking about he was speaking specifically of regenerative agriculture and he pointed out that you know if you leave land barren if you turn over the soil nature will of course find something to get planted there like whether it's weeds mm-hmm. or you know grasses it will cover it and i that that yes. that just always kind of stuck with me so um, of mm-hmm. course that is outside of places like the desert where they've just lost so much nutrients that the soil is, is virtually dead but that is always mm-hmm. kind of just stuck with me could you just kind of speak to that point is do does planting cover crops prevent some of that additional weed those weeds to kind of creep in or or how does that work 
Well, that's a really good point because, you know, nature is an incredible thing. And when people look out at a field and they see weeds, you know, weed is really an unwanted plant, you know, in, in a specific situation. But when I look out and I see a weed, I, I see, you know, nature trying to heal itself and nature trying to solve a problem. And that's bare soil. Um, and that might, you know, there might be other problems like compaction. And they send a certain plant like foxtail that is a fibrous root system to break up. Uh, break up compaction and so first of all I would I would challenge the theory that every weed out there is a problem um, perhaps those weeds are solving a problem that otherwise you know wouldn't have been solved if that weed wasn't there and so depending on the situation look at the weeds as as an opportunity with cattle our cattle will eat a lot of the plants that would otherwise be considered weeds um, like ragweed and lamb's quarter and they'll eat those uh, you know maybe not in a monocrop of straight uh, a straight ragweed but in a diverse mix of pasture and other plants they'll eat those weeds and so they can become a resource but you're right for the average crop farmer who views those things as a problem the problem that they're trying to solve uh, you know be it compaction or be it bare soil can be addressed with a different cover crop that may have more value to you as a farmer such as rye or a legume or a brassica and so recognize that the weed itself is there for a reason and try to figure out what that reason might be and try to try to address the root cause weeds are just a symptom they're not the root cause and how can we address that root symptom with cover crops or with other uh, regenerative soil health management practices but it's all about mindset and not just trying to attack a problem or a, a symptom, but attack the problem. And usually it, it comes down to following nature's principles um, when it comes to solving those problems. But that's a great, that's a great point and a great observation is, is that nature really is self-healing and self-regulating. And, and if left alone to its own devices, we'll, we'll probably you know, we'll keep the land covered and, and solve a lot of those problems on their own. And you, you mentioned, and we talked a little bit about regenerative agriculture, but I just kind of want to expand on it. You know, commercially mm -hmm. speaking, there are companies that are really starting to place a, a higher value on regenerative agriculture. I think of General Mills, for example, which is a, a local company. I believe that by 2030, they are looking to have 1 million acres of farmland into some type of regenerative agriculture practice. So you are mm -hmm. starting to see more and more companies kind of pay more attention to this come swing this way and a lot of that of course is is because consumers are somewhat demanding it and i think um if you look at some trends as uh, younger millennials and generation z that comes after it they're very conscious about where their food comes from and, and how it's grown so that all mm -hmm. plays into this what are you seeing from a regenerative standpoint? Are, are you getting people contacting your office, inquiring more about it, what they can do? Or, you know, what are you guys kind of hearing in your world? Yeah, the, the, the focus on, well, like I talked about earlier, now in magazines, you're seeing these things being talked about, like soil health and regenerative agriculture and sustainable agriculture. Um, these things are being talked about more than they ever have. And so we have seen definitely an increased demand um, for what we're putting out there, the education and the resources that we're putting out there, which is really exciting. Um, the coolest thing that I see is that, you know, it doesn't have to be counterintuitive or counteractive to production agriculture. You know, we can produce high quality volumes of cheap feed, food uh, and feed a world uh, while also, 
improving our soils and improving our environment, improving our bottom line and improving our lifestyle. Um, it's not a one or the other thing. And so as more and more people come to this realization that maybe there's different ways to do things, whether they want to or not, or if it's consumer driven or farmer driven or, or whatever is the reason they're coming to this conclusion that they may need to try things. Um, it's exciting to see that they are coming to that conclusion and that, that uh, they are realizing that it doesn't have to be a one or the other thing and that this is really uh, a pretty exciting time and exciting movement in agriculture. Animal agriculture, thinking of, uh, you know, if you, if you turn on the headlines and you, you hear about climate change, for example, animal agriculture has at times gotten somewhat of a bad rap in that regard. Mm -hmm. But really, animal agriculture and livestock can really be integrated into this plan and, and help. Uh, could you just kind of talk about that concept, please? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, as a cattle producer myself, I've heard all of the the arguments and the the statements of you know why what we're doing is terrible but you're absolutely right that animal agriculture and livestock integration on the land can be a huge resource for us i talked about photosynthesis earlier and, and you know how important that is to improving our soils and to sequestering carbon from the air and the atmosphere and putting it into our soils you know livestock play an important role in that on pasture lands that if they were left idle in a just you know vast prairie land without livestock uh, those those plants would grow tall they would uh, get mature they would die and then they would smother out anything beneath it and kind of eliminate growth and that photosynthesis would be extremely limited whereas cattle can almost act as a pruning tool to you know harvest the top bit of that grass and set it back so it can allow that plant to regrow and continue photosynthesizing well into the season um, and that, you know, that's extremely important. Um, additionally, livestock, uh, you know, they say what comes out of the back end of a cow can't be recreated by, you know, by man. Um, the, the fertility uh, that comes from the manure of an animal is extremely important. And also cattle on a, a crop farm can allow those cover crops, which are beneficial on their own, to have value. Um, a cover crop that otherwise would just be terminated and left, uh, you know, left uh, dead essentially would have no value if not harvested by an animal and, and, and sold off the farm in, in, in the form of pounds of beef. Um, it, it's extremely beneficial in that it can become a value add for a farm. And, and I know that I, you know, I know several farmers and I can understand completely that, um, you know, a row crop farmer is, is used to you know, they have their extremely busy seasons and stuff, but livestock has a new level of, of an everyday job that animal has to be fed. And there are absolutely ways that farmers can get livestock integration on their land without needing to own or manage the cattle on their own. They can work with farmers who have cattle who are trying to extend their own grazing season and are willing to pay those those crop farmers to utilize cover crops on their land or corn stalks on their land and can be actually an additional value or resource to the crop farmer without actually needing to own or manage any cattle on their own. Um, one resource that just pops off my head is the Minnesota Department of Ag has a uh, cropland and grazing exchange resource, which is a map that has kind of a resource uh, connecting farmers with land or, or grazing land of some sort, be it crop residue, cover crops, pasture, whatever it is, and it connects farmers with animals who are looking for that land and that asset. Um, and so if, if a farmer wants to get livestock impact on their land but doesn't want to do the work or the management of it, there are ways out there to do that. And 
So yeah, I think that maybe went beyond the uh, the question you had intentionally or uh, at first asked. But livestock integration is so essential to a healthy, you know, and a, and a, uh, a healthy soil system. And it's not the only way. There are lots of farmers out there building soils without the use of livestock, but to accelerate it and to improve it even further, uh, getting livestock on that land is a really quick way to do it. There might be a notion out there that in order to really get the the benefits, you need to be a larger operation in terms of livestock. You, you need to own a, a fair amount of land. Is it possible mm-hmm. for smaller operations to capture that same benefit? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up being kind of told that you needed at least a thousand acres per family to, to farm full time and uh, to be on the land, making a living off the land. Um, my family's had multiple, you know, family or my farm has had multiple farms, families living on our farm. Uh, and we have less than a thousand acres. Um, and we do that by focusing on reducing costs, which cover crops and regenerative agriculture are so important in doing and by improving or increasing the value of what we're selling, um, which we're able to do through our regenerative management, we have a premium product. And, uh, and so absolutely. Um, absolutely it's possible and there's ways to do it on even less land than we have there are people making a living on you know anywhere from one acre to 40 acres to 80 acres um but it offers an additional challenge you know i've kind of always said there's or thought there's a couple different ways to make a living in agriculture and one is to produce a lot of something very cheap and another is to produce a little of something at a premium Um, And you get to choose which challenge you want to overcome the challenge of, you know, large scale production and all of those challenges or the challenge of of marketing. Uh, Marketing is a it can be a very big challenge, but it can also be very rewarding and very diverse Um, when a, for example, with COVID, what happened with commodity agriculture, people who are marketing to ethanol plants that just shut down because they they were forced to shut down. You know, they were out their entire customer base, whereas a farmer direct marketing beef to 100 consumers in the Twin Cities, if they lose one customer, if they lose 10 customers, they're okay. Um, So there are definitely advantages and disadvantages to each system. But to say that you have to be a large scale producer in order to make it in agriculture is just a it's just a misconception or a myth. So ultimately, you know, all of this, whether it's cover cropping, whether it's mixing in animals and livestock, it, it is ultimately about the soil health. Yes. Have you found any type of studies or, or maybe you're, you're conducting some of your own in terms of showing the benefits of some of these practices to the soil health uh, in terms of maybe future yields or reduction and, and taking in of water? Maybe there's less flooding. Could you just kind of talk about some of that? Yeah, so there's lots of research and lots of stuff out there. There are some professional research studies done out there, um, but largely it's been independent farmers practicing these things on their farm. And some people would say, you know, that's uh, circumstantial and that's not, you know, that's that's not a valid form of research or that doesn't show, you know, you can't trust that and apply it everywhere. But those there's there's dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of farmers across the country doing these practices that have seen reduced tillage passes, reduced chemical usage, reduced fertilizer usage, increased productivity and profitability. Um, And some of the ways that we're collecting that information, uh, you know, 
one project that I'm working on right now is a case studies project that we are highlighting 10 farmers in Southeast Minnesota. And we have a couple of case study projects that we've done already in other parts of the state that are highlighting farmers practicing these, uh, these soil management practices on their farms. And so I would direct people if they're looking specifically for research and resources on this to the SFA website, which is a great consolidation of a lot of these different resources. Um, but also I would just encourage people to look into their communities because you may hear a producer in North Dakota say, you know, he's done this and all these great things have come from it. But, you know, me in Southeast Minnesota, you know, we have two to three times the rainfall he gets there and, uh, land prices are two to four times higher. And so, you know, the context of what our farm and his farm, you know, is going to be different than his farm. And so I, I would encourage everyone to look out in their own communities in the spring when you see green rye growing up in the spring before anyone else has uh, ever planted something you know figure out whose land that is go talk to him ask him about what uh why he planted those cover crops and what has he seen from it you know look for the farm that's not that that's not tilled in the fall or the spring and, and figure out why they're doing it or if you see somebody grazing cattle out on you know sorghum sedan grass in january you know don't be afraid to stop in and not ask those people, you know, talk to them, figure out why they're doing it and what they've seen from it. Because as far as I'm concerned, I've not met a farmer yet who's not willing to share um, the benefits of what they've seen and why they're doing it. But there's there's only so much value you can get from, you know, reading a book and or from learning, you know, from outside of your your area. And I would really encourage people to to seek out those farmers in their local area as resources and mentors in their own soil health journey. And it seems like there is a little bit of us versus them mentality in certain aspects of not just agriculture, but, you know, in, in the world in general. There are some people that might push back on some of these practices. They might not be, they might not think that they're quite as beneficial, or maybe they feel that the the way that we've been doing things is is good enough. Uh, how do you break down some of those barriers and just at least try to connect with them and say, okay, you might not want to, you might not be ready to Im- implement these right now, but maybe in the future, you know, let's keep the door open. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the next generation or, or something along those lines. But how do you bridge that gap? That's a great question because as long as uh, as long as there's humans on this planet, there will be disagreements, I'm sure. And you know, we're never gonna get everyone to believe everything and, and recognizing that that that's okay. It's one of the great things about this country is that farmers and and that everyone has choice, choice of what they consume, choice of what they plant and how they plant things. So part of how these shifts are gonna happen, I think largely will come from consumer drive. Um, at the end of the day, farmers are, you know, serving a customer and they have to have a place to sell their product. And so as companies, like you mentioned earlier, General Mills is recognizing that consumers want something different and they're looking to provide it. And they're offering, um, you know, I'm not sure specifically what their program is, but in time, as more consumers demand something, a premium will be offered for that product. So for some people, it might be a financial motive for shifting. Um, for other people, it might be a soil health motive for shifting um you know we we can only provide opportunities to learn and that's what we're trying to do at sustainable farming association is just provide opportunities um covid's kind of put a you know made a challenge for us to offer these but we you know as soon as all this is we have actually several workshops and field days coming up where we're 
where we're absolutely following COVID guidelines and whatnot. But as things get more under control, we'll continue to offer more field days and workshops where farmers can get out and see for themselves how these things are being implemented and the results of what's coming from them. And so I guess we just need to keep providing opportunities and keep being the resource with it when they're ready, because we can't force anyone to change their mind. But when they're ready, when they they've decided that they're willing to think about things differently, that they have a place to go to learn. And that's the resource that we want to be for all these farmers. Well, Jared, is there anything that we uh, we missed today you'd like to talk about? Well, one thing I I haven't had the chance to list them all and stuff. We talked about a few of them, but it's just the, the soil health principles. And these come directly from watching nature and figuring out, you know, when we when we look at nature or what this landscape looked like before we got here, what were those so the the principles that kind of guided nature at its time and, and those are the five soil health principles that we try to implement on every farm and keep in mind that every one of these is, is not going to look the same on any on any other farm you know you're going to have to apply them each within your context but those soil health principles are is number one to keep your soil covered as much as possible to reduce erosion to reduce um, erosion by wind or water and also just to keep your soil protected from the sun uh, people don't realize that see, sun and, and heat can kill your biology faster than anything else. Uh, the second one is to minimize soil disturbance, and that's chemical disturbance and tillage disturbance. Uh, the third would be to increase diversity in crop rotation, in livestock. You know, every animal is going to consume a different, you know, it consumes different plants, whereas, you know, sheep and goats like more browse and forbs, cattle prefer more grasses. And so diversity in animals will offer diversity in what, the impact that that landscape sees. The fourth one is to keep living roots as much as possible. And that kind of goes back to maximizing that photosynthesis and improving our soil structure. And lastly, is just to integrate livestock, which we've, which we've already talked about, but I, uh, I, <laughs> you asked and I'm glad to share those. I'd be happy to share those, uh, yeah, those five soil health principles and encourage farmers to look at their farms and figure out how they can apply each of those on their operations. Absolutely. So if, if somebody listening along is interested in this conversation, would like to learn more, what's the best spot that they can visit or go to to find out more information? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Yeah, our website is sfa-mn.org, and that's the Minnesota Sustainable Farming Association's website. And on that, there's resources, you know, all sorts of resources from videos, webinars, um, you know, and, and manuals and uh, and whatnot uh, to contact. Contact for me, um, contact for our other staff that have more specialized knowledge in things like silvopasture or garlic and different you know, crop and, and production systems. And so if there's something you are interested in, don't hesitate to give us or me specifically a call. Um, we'd be happy to help you in any way we can. And if we can't figure out the answer for you, we'll be sure to help you find a place that can. Awesome. Well, Jared, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, thanks so much, Adam. That's Jared Lumen, who serves as the Soil Health Lead for the Sustainable Farming Association of Minnesota. That's going to do it for this episode of the Rural Perspectives Podcast, which is a production of Egg Country Farm Credit Services. To get more great content, please visit www.eggcountry.com.